You know, a lot of people were kind of handed their faith from their parents. Uh, their parents believed something, and then their parents pr- passed down that tradition uh, to them, and they grew up with that. But then when they became adults, they began to question that because of life. What happens to them doesn't quite make sense. And they say things like, well, you know, uh, I was told as a kid that God is good. Uh, but then I see things that make it really hard to understand how God could be good and still allow those certain things to happen. Another example is we were told, you know, God answers prayer. Uh, but then we pray for something and we go, well, God, you didn't answer my prayers because I never got that job that I needed or my parents still got divorced or my brother's still chronically ill. My loved one still passed away or my spouse still left me or my prodigal child still hasn't come home. And so, God, I prayed and you didn't answer and I'm not quite too sure what I'm supposed to do with that. And so sometimes the faith we had as a child Starts out so real, but then kind of gets chipped away by the pressures of adult life. We begin to have doubts. We begin to have questions, really tough questions about life and about God. And that's really what this series is all about. We're continuing in our series called Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And each week we're seeking to address one difficult question. And when it comes to answering the big questions of life, And choosing a worldview, theologian and philosopher Ravi Zacharias says there's four main questions you have to ask. Origins, where did I come from? Meaning, what's the purpose of life? Ethics, how do I know right from wrong? And finally, destiny, what happens when I die? Any worldview has to seek to ask and answer those questions. And as you can see on the screen, there's a lot at stake with every single question up there. But eventually we choose, and eventually we have to make our decision. And so today, we're going to start with that first question of origins. Where did I come from? Seems like a good place to start, and so we're going to ask one question today. Is there evidence for a creator? We're going to look at four views, five problems, and then make one final argument. Before we do, let's pray. Oh God, we come to you now and ask that you would open hearts What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for your beautiful name. Amen. Let me begin today with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seems pretty simple, seems pretty clear, seems pretty straightforward, right? All right, let's all go home. Question answered. There's actually a lot of different views on origins. And so just to set the stage, I'm going to give you four broad categories that are out there. Uh, The first perspective is called naturalistic Darwinian evolution. Darwinism is the theory that all of life can be accounted for, all the diversity of all the species occurred because of random genetic mutations acted on by the process of natural selection. The word naturalism there means it was a totally natural and unguided process. In other words, there's no God, no divine intervention is necessary. This view, of course, is taught widely in the public school system. That's the view that I was taught as I grew up here in New Jersey. Uh, That's the view in the textbooks. And it's also integrated into the fabric of our culture in a lot of different ways. Presently, it's the most widely accepted view. The next perspective let's call young earth creationism. This is the belief that the earth and the universe are about 6,000 years old. Uh, This view seeks to take Genesis 1 in a very literal fashion. 
It talks a lot about the Genesis flood being responsible for the geological realities we see. The next option, let's call theistic evolution. In this view, there is a belief in God, but the idea is that God designed a kind of cosmic theater such that human beings would arise naturally through the process of evolution, but God is really the one behind it all. Now, just to be clear, these are not atheists. These are theists saying we can accept some elements of evolution into our worldview. And then last, we're just going to call progressive creationism. The basic idea here is that God created, but he did so progressively. He created, but over a long period of time and with some breaks in between. And so those who hold this view still affirm that God is the creator, but they also want to allow the natural sciences to accurately conclude that the universe is old, billions of years old. But they believe natural processes and ordinary providence are not adequate to explain everything. And so therefore, it's also a theistic view. Now, options two, three, and four fall into the broader category of creationism. That affirms that the universe is a creation of an almighty, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. Now, as a further subdivision, the last two fall into the category of old earth creationism. And so typically they would read the first chapter of Genesis in a more nuanced way, making the days represent ages of time, or reading the whole passage as more poetic than historical. Here's the four main categories. If you're doing okay so far, say amen. Good, still gotcha. Now allow me to make two caveats before I even move on. First, let me point out something really important. There are good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who disagree about this topic. And though this might bother some of you, the only view up here that is really incompatible with the Christian worldview is number one. And here's why that's true. Uh, You don't get to heaven based on your theory of creation. Period. Full stop. You get to heaven based on faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to make sure I say that very clearly at the beginning. Now, don't get me wrong. You may have a view. You may have very strong opinions about your view, and that's okay, but I would encourage you not to use inflammatory language toward those who disagree with your view, putting them outside the circle of Christianity. I don't think that's very helpful. While things might be unclear about exactly which position of origins is the correct one, The one thing that's crystal clear in the scriptures is that we, as God's children, are to live with humility, and we are not to be quarrelsome, and we should be able to agree to disagree about these things and still maintain a spirit of unity in the body of Christ. Amen? The second thing is I am trained as a pastor. Uh, My master's degree is in theology. And so while I was studying Greek and Hebrew and all those other topics, other people were studying the sciences. And so although I have a strong opinion about what the languages of Scripture will allow and what issues each one brings with it theologically, when it comes to the science, I must rely heavily on the work of experts. I have to do reading. I've actually talked through my notes this week with several individuals who are PhDs in the scientific disciplines. Then I was thinking, maybe it's good that I'm not a scientist, because I suspect for many of us here today, neither are you. And so that way we can ask together, how can we, the average person, explore these questions? This is where I am. 
Uh, but by all means, I always encourage you to question me, do your own research, and keep the conversation going. Now, with all of that said, let me explain why the first position up there is problematic. Now, that might be your position. That's fine. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I do hold to a Christian worldview, and I am going to offer a critique of that position. And to begin my critique, I just want to start with a quote from Darwin himself. About 20 years ago, when I read The Origin of Species, I remember he said this. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, obviously, Darwin did not find this to be the case, but what he's presenting here for us is what's called a condition for falsification. And what I want to argue is that 150 years later, now we're aware of certain elements in the biosphere that are too complex to be explained without some kind of intelligent designer. Now, as soon as I say something like that, the Darwinists get upset and say, oh, here we go, the religious guy attacking science again. You just want to set up a theocracy, force us all to obey the Bible, and that's really not fair. There are totally, completely secular criticisms of Darwin's theory by scholars like Noam Chomsky, the linguist, who says development of human language cannot be accounted for by Darwinian evolution. There are lots of problems with this. Uh, Today, I'm just going to mention five. I think they're the top five, uh, and I want you to grapple with them. Top five. Ready? Here we go. Number one, uh, the biggest problem, I think, is the problem of getting life from non-life. This is referred to sometimes as abiogenesis. See, Darwin's theory had to start with the very first life being present. It does not encompass how non-life can become life. That is a major problem. Now, some people have tried to duplicate this in a laboratory setting, such as the famous Miller experiment, but every time they try to duplicate this, they have failed without exception. Getting life from non-life is a major problem. I remember I was talking to a microbiologist at a church where I was serving as their pastor. And he was a PhD. He worked for Merck, very smart guy. He was working on the cure for hepatitis C, which is pretty awesome. And he said, Pastor Dave, what you have to believe, to believe that you can get this to be possible, is that long time ago, there was a big sea and there was chemicals in the sea and they became proteins. That's a pretty big leap of faith. But then you have to believe those proteins, over time, randomly, became the self-replicating RNA molecule. That's a pretty big gap. He said, that's not the biggest leap of faith, though. He said, then you have to go from that RNA molecule to become a fully functioning cell. He said, Pastor Dave, do you realize how complicated a cell is? I'm like, not not really. He goes, (laughs) Pastor Dave, it's amazing. It's like a metropolitan city inside of a cell. You got city walls, you got gates and toll booths that let things in and out, you got a town hall in there, the nucleus, you got a power plant, you've even got a water source just like a city. There's a park inside of there that can perform photosynthesis. Cells are really, really complicated, Pastor Dave. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. And then he told me something that I've never forgotten. He said, there is such a large leap of faith needed there that if you think that just happened by chance, yet you disallow for the hypothesis of the existence of God, you are displaying a lack of open-mindedness. I said, whoa, this is a problem. Getting life from non-life. Many people in the scientific field have 
noted this. Even Francis Crick said maybe life was seeded here first by aliens. Now, is there any evidence for these aliens? Not unless you talk to some really weird people. But really, even if there was, it leads us to another question. Where did they first get life from non-life? That doesn't solve the problem. It just kicks the can backwards, and we're still lacking a solution. You can't get something from nothing. Even if you go all the way back to the beginning, theologians have a phrase, ex nihilo, nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. In terms of the natural world, that's true. That means there must have been something supernatural, and that must seriously be considered as the only solution, I believe, that has enough explanatory power. I mean, what kind of force do you need to bring life from non-life? What can bring something from nothing? I believe the ultimate answer to this problem is not a scientific one. It is a theological one. The answer is not a what It is a who. You need an eternal being who is the first cause, who is a great power, who begins to look strikingly similar to the one spoken of in the Holy Scriptures, such as Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Listen to this quote from physicist Robert Jastrow. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Whatever view you take when it comes to the beginning of life, you have a completely faith-based position. Let me emphasize that because sometimes people say, well, it's just faith versus science, right? There's people of faith, like you, then there's people of science and reason and evidence. False dichotomy. If you're intellectually honest, you have to admit whatever worldview you hold, you are not just making observations, you are making certain assumptions without any observational evidence. You might not call it faith, you might call it a theory, you might call it a presupposition, you might call it a hypothesis. Whatever it is, it is a faith-based position. What I have found, though, is that in certain circles, naturalistic Darwinism can never be questioned. If you don't toe the line, you don't get a position on our university faculty. You don't get published in our peer-reviewed journal. You are marginalized on the outside as arrogant, ignorant, or stupid. There is a cultural consensus about this. Listen to comedian Bill Maher as he talks about anybody who disagrees. Evolution is supported by the entire scientific community. Intelligent design is supported by guys online to see the Dukes of Hazard. First of all, this isn't true at all. But second of all, in this way, notice how condescending and mocking his tone is. Notice how closed off to other views he is. In this way, this is not functioning like a scientific theory. It is functioning like fundamentalism, dogmatic. It cannot be questioned. Don't suggest anything from the other side. Richard Dawkins said, if you believe this, then you're totally ignorant. Question the theory, you'll be bullied, you'll be marginalized by the powers that be. But everyone has to have some sort of faith-based position, even them. Imagine it like this. Let's say you are hiking in the woods, and lo and behold, you come across a grizzly bear. 
And to avoid this grizzly bear, you take off running, and then you find this steep cliff, and you decide you're going to kind of launch yourself down that cliff, and there's a bunch of branches there that you have to choose which one to hold on to. Which branch are you going to grab? In a sense, when it comes to this question about choosing a worldview in terms of origins, there's lots of different branches for you to choose. But what if that branch doesn't hold you? What if that branch snaps off in your hands? A lot of branches do snap. All worldviews cannot be true. They contradict each other. And so the question you have to ask here is, what are the assumptions that my worldview is making? This branch that I'm holding on to, is this a real credible worldview? More importantly, is this a probable worldview? Will my worldview hold up to scrutiny, the same kind of scrutiny with which I am scrutinizing Christianity, because that's only fair? What we want to assert throughout this series is that the branch called Christianity can hold a lot of weight. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, the Cambrian explosion. Here's the problem in a nutshell. The theory of evolution says gradually all kinds of changes took place in the biosphere over a long time, leading down to one common ancestor like you see here on the screen. The problem is that the actual evidence from the ground does not support such gradual evolution. We know when we dig down into the earth, there was a time period of intense explosion of life called the Cambrian explosion. This week, I was talking to a geophysicist who said it's actually pretty cool. Dave, you see layers upon layers upon layers of rock with nothing in what appears to be a clean succession of time. And then suddenly, wham, there's life. It's clear something major happened at that time. Then I asked him, do you see evidence for an intelligent designer in the field of geology? He says, yes, overwhelmingly so. So that was good to hear. And then he added, the only people who claim that God is not necessary are people who don't understand their own theories. Again, there's a huge discrepancy between the theory and the data. The data doesn't show gradualism, which leads us right to the next problem. The next problem, number three, is a lacking of transitional forms in the fossil record. In order for Darwin's theory to be true, then there ought to have been transitional forms in the ground. Uh, Let me quote Stephen Jay Gould here, who's not a Christian, but still he admits this. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. It was never seen in the rocks. In other words, what he's saying is we don't observe the slow, gradual change the theory says we should observe. This is why he postulated the theory of punctuated equilibrium, which we're still not sure how that would have worked. It's a problem. And when it comes to transitional species, I know you've seen drawings in your textbooks, just like I have, of what this might look like. For example, there's a famous drawing of fish, salamander, and human embryos, which claims to show how similar they look in the beginning. It's found in many high school and college biology textbooks. Recent work has shown that this is fraudulent. It was faked by a guy named Ernest Heckel. It was bogus. These drawings were purposely distorted, exaggerating the similarities to make them look more similar than they actually are. Now you might say, well, don't we know of some examples where evolution has been proven? And I would say, well, it depends what you mean by the word evolution. Let me make a distinction between microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution, in the sense that things change as a result of adaptation, like Darwin's finch beaks, is evident. 
Every rational person sees and believes that. We can observe microevolution. But macroevolution believes that there can also be these wide-scale changes over time and that all living organisms have a common ancestor so fish can turn into an amphibian and molecules eventually, given enough time, can turn into a human being. That's another story. There's major problems with that, which leads us to the next issue, the problem of increasing genetic information. Animals and plants are made up of living cells which perform many functions. Each cell has a set of instructions or code called DNA. DNA carries information for all the functions carried out by the cell. It's a tiny book of instructions. It's what tells your body how to make you. Everything from what color eyes you have, your hair, your features, everything. So every time your body needs to make something, it goes back to the instruction book. Think about that. DNA, a language. A code, like binary computer code. A real message about the makings of life on the microscopic level. And it is fantastically complex. One time Bill Gates said DNA was far more sophisticated than any computer software program we could ever imagine. DNA. Imagine a computer program running like a factory, like a car manufacturing plant. One which has robots that do certain tasks like putting a rivet in a certain piece of steel, just the right place. Do you think a program like that just made itself? Do you think a book like this could just randomly come together with all the letters and chapter breaks all being in the right place without an author, without a designer? Who wrote the code? I mean, how else did these intricate instructions come about? Through unguided natural causes? No. One person calls DNA the language of God. Now, who said that? Probably some fundamentalist, Bible-thumping ignoramus who believes in a flat earth, right? No. His name's Dr. Francis Collins. He's the director of the Human Genome Project. He's also a committed Christian. Now, let me take it a step further. During reproduction, this DNA code is copied and passed on from one generation to another. That's why offspring look like their parents. How many of you knew this already? Okay, good, yeah. (laughs) Here's the problem. There is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's DNA code. You need a mechanism. Now, evolutionists say the mechanism is random mutation. But Dr. Stephen Meyer makes this point in his excellent book, The Signature of the Cell. He says... If you're writing a computer code and you accidentally delete a section or mess up a section, is that more likely to degrade the software or improve it? Random mutations don't improve the system. They destroy the system. See, Darwin lived before the discovery of DNA. When he looked into a microscope, it wasn't as powerful as we have today. When he saw a cell, it looked kind of like a glob of jello. We had no idea what was in a cell until most recent, more recently. Challenges to Darwinian evolution have led more than 600 scientists to sign a document called A Scientific Descent to Darwinism. It reads, We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. These are Christians and non-Christians. People with PhDs 
from major universities, Berkeley, Stanford, colleges throughout the world. This is why, to be honest, the theistic evolution position seems to me to be problematic. You've got these secular scientists going, hey, we need a new theory. Then you've got these theologians going, let's integrate this into our worldview. But that's another issue for another day. The next problem I would like to point out is the fifth one. It's called irreducible complexity. The basic idea here is that life is made up of complex systems. These systems all need components to function properly. They cannot gradually become what they are. Now, Dr. Michael Behe, who's a biochemist at Lehigh University, shout out to the Lehigh grads, amen, okay. He has championed this problem in his book, Darwin's Black Box. He explains it in much more detail, but the basic point he makes is inside the human cell, there's massive and interactive complexity. One particular example he gives in that book is something called the bacterial flagellum. It's basically a miniature machine. It operates essentially like an outboard motor. This one tiny machine has 30 separate working together functional parts. It has a rotary engine, which means it has a rotor, a stator, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, a drive shaft, and a little hook-like tail that acts like a propeller. It turns at 100,000 RPM, it's hardwired into an electrical circuit, and it can change directions on a quarter of a turn. This thing is really cool. Now here's the problem. Behe says all the parts to that thing are necessary for propelling a bacterium from the cell. The problem is if you take away just one part, one element from this organism, it no longer performs the function. It can't contribute to survival anymore. In other words, you take away part number 26, part number 27, part number 28. No intermediate stages would make this thing work at all. And so gradual changes don't work when it comes to this kind of miniature machine. It's kind of all or nothing. This is just one small example of these kind of machines that are at work all the time inside of us. These things, I believe, require a massive amount of complexity which point us to an intelligent designer. Now, as a pastor, let me make a theological point about this for just a moment. Inside of you, in your cells, is your personal DNA. Now, you have 46 chromosomes. So imagine your DNA as a book that has 46 chapters in it. Each of those chapters has 48 to 250 million letters in each chapter. That is 3.2 billion letters total. You have a 3 billion character description of who you are on the inside of you written in the very language of God Almighty about who you were ordained to be. If I were to read just the description of you, letter by letter, it would take me 90 years to read it. You have 75 trillion cells in your body. Every cell contains your whole entire DNA code. This is absolutely amazing. You are a miracle sitting right here in this building today. The scriptures testify in Psalm 139 about our God who knit us together. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. It's amazing when you look at God's creation, how it all points us toward God's intricate design. Psalm 139 says it well, but allow me to quote the great St. Augustine about this because he just nails it in this quote. Augustine says this, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, the huge waves of the sea, the long course of the rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars, but they pass by themselves and they don't even notice. Friends, your God made you and he knows you, every hair on your head, and he knows your name. And he says, I will hold you in my right hand and I will never let you go. He created you and you belong to him. Now, I could keep going, but let me just push the pause button right here. In light of everything we just talked about, why would someone be so opposed to positing an intelligent designer? Philip Johnson argues in his book, Darwin on Trial, that the main engine of Darwinism is not the evidence, but a pre-commitment to materialism. Now, why would someone have that pre-commitment? Listen to this quote from Thomas Nagel, as I believe it reveals the author's bias being exposed for all of us to see. Quote, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, I'm glad he said it, because I don't have to say it. But you see how we're getting closer to what the Bible describes as happening in Romans 1. You see, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. What this passage is teaching is that God can obviously be, be known through his creation. But we, because we love our sin and don't want to submit to him, suppress the truth that we know about God in unrighteousness. It's like the guy I used to play volleyball with in a swimming pool. He would hide the volleyball underneath where he was and go, where's the volleyball? I don't know where the volleyball is. He was pushing it down. That's what the atheist is doing. They're actively pushing down what they know to be true about God since he has made it plain to them. And as a result, Paul says, they have become fools. Now, the fool in the Bible is not an intellectual charge. The fool in the Bible is a moral charge. It's the person who trades a relationship with their creator for the pleasures of this world. That is a horrible trade with eternal consequences, and it is foolish. Not only that, when we trade God, we also lose a bunch of other important things, like our sense of meaning and purpose and ethics and destiny. 
Not a good trade. A foolish trade. And now we're starting to see, I think, what is the darker side of naturalistic Darwinism. And this is where I want to push in on my sharpest critique. If you apply this same theory to ethics or government or economics, things start to spin out of control. If the basic idea is the fit ones survive and the weak ones die off, what would stop us from trying to speed that process along a little bit? Why don't we just exterminate those who are intellectually deficient or physically deficient? Perhaps the most evil influence in this theory came through Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. I can't believe I went through 12 years of public education and no one ever pointed out to me the connection between Darwinism and World War II. But once I saw it, it became really obvious. Natural selection was a guiding idea for Hitler and the Nazis. They were selecting certain people to live and others to go to the gas chamber. This was necessary to cleanse the gene pool. Millions and millions were killed. This happened in the midst of the eugenics movement, which put restrictions on who could and who couldn't marry and determined that certain people should be sterilized. Though this is largely ignored now, Planned Parenthood is directly linked to this eugenics movement. Margaret Sanger herself was an enthusiastic Darwinist. She would talk about raising up a new race of thoroughbreds. And other eugenics proponents would talk about eliminating human weeds. They would call people useless eaters, just taking up our natural resources. You see the ethical problems here? Let me quote Tim Keller. He says this, What happens in a society that got its idea of human rights from a belief that all people are created in the image of God? When as a society as a whole, it loses its idea of God. That's a really good question. What makes human beings worthy of rights and therefore protection? We now have to ground human rights in capacities. So what that means is we all have certain capacities, and we can have the capacity to contribute to our society in some way. But only because of those capacities are we found to be valuable and worthy of protection. Here's the problem. Life in the womb doesn't have those capacities. If we could take it a step further... Born infants don't have those capacities either. Neither do senile old people. Neither do very mentally or physically handicapped people. None of them qualify to have rights based on their capacities. And so now today we have modern naturalistic Darwinists like Peter Singer at Princeton who says things like this. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a full-grown pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. You see, that's crazy. Why? Isn't he just applying the theory, a totally naturalistic worldview without God? He's applying that to the realm of ethics. Things are valuable because of how useful they are. See, there's a major issue here when you start talking about morality. It becomes your morality is whatever society thinks it should be. That's the real legacy of this theory. Naturalism leads to a dark place. It has in the past... And I think whether you're a Christian or not, we should think very carefully about what kind of theory we're passing on to the next generation. The big problem, in my view, theologically, is that if you're told that there's no God, no creator, no designer, I think you're being robbed. You're being robbed of any transcendent meaning. You're being robbed of your humanity. 
When your society tells you you're nothing more than a highly evolved animal, you came from nothing, you're going to nothing, nothing you really ever do in your life is going to amount to anything in the final analysis, you are being robbed of your birthright. You are made in the image of God with certain inalienable rights, and you are treating that birthright for a bowl of primordial soup. I want to read you a quote from a scientist who's not a Christian. Uh, His name is David Berlinski, but he took major issue with Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and wrote a counter book called The Devil's Delusion. Let me just read you what he says. Has anyone provided a proof for God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's here? Not even close. Have the scientists explained why our universe, scientists, sciences explained why our universe seemed to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Final question. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. See, In theological circles, we posit that God is the creator of everything. And I want to give you one final argument today, if you're still with me. This argument is called the design argument. Essentially, the argument says, based on the order you see all around you, not only in biology, but in other fields of science, such as astronomy, you can see the intricate design everywhere you look. That design points to a designer. When you look at a painting, you infer a painter. When you look at a building, you infer a builder. You might not see the builder right there. He might not even be alive anymore, but you would still infer there must have been a builder at one time. In that way, when you see creation, you infer a creator. Let's go beyond the field of biology for just a moment and point out some things in the field of astronomy. Let me just give you a few examples. The distance between the earth and the sun is just right. We just so happen to live in what's called the habitable zone. It's very precise. If the earth were closer, the oceans would all dry up and we'd burn up. If, uh, on the other hand, the earth was too far, all the oceans would freeze up and life would be non-existent. But as it is today, we're right smack in the middle of this thing. It's just right. It's like that old story of Goldilocks and the three bears. This one's too small. This one's too big. This one, just right. Francis Collins points out about 15 examples in his book, The Language of God. Let me just give you a few more. The amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, just right. If that percentage was too low or too high, life would not be possible. What are the odds of this? The earth has an axis that's tilted just right to allow for seasons. The earth-moon rotation is set up just right to give us the ocean tides. The thickness of our earth's crust, just right. The force of gravity, just right. 
There's even a nearby planet, Jupiter, which is so huge, it acts like a vacuum to attract other dangerous objects so they won't collide with us. Isn't that convenient that it's right over there? (laughs) Just right. Last example. And this one I got from the geophysicist I talked to. He said, all the minerals we need are right here on Earth, whether it's iron or gold or copper or aluminum. We have everything to thrive. And then he said, it's kind of like baking a cake and somebody set out all the ingredients that you need to bake it. On and on and on, all of these things, just right to support life as we know it. What are the odds of all this stuff just working out simultaneously? By chance, they are really slim. Imagine it this way. Let's imagine a lottery, a jackpot game. Everybody in our state plays the lottery every week. The prize, 10 million bucks. Week one, a certain person wins the lottery, 10 million bucks. Week two, the same guy wins the lottery, 10 million bucks. Week three, same guy wins the lottery, 10 million bucks. Week four, Same guy wins the lottery. How many of you at this point are suspecting some sort of corruption in the New Jersey state government? Yeah. We would say, yeah, of course. I mean, I guess it's possible, but because of the odds, how could that be probable? Sometimes naturalistic Darwinists remind me of Jim Carrey in that movie, Dumb and Dumber. You remember, he wants to go out with this really pretty lady, and so he goes up and talks to her, and he says, you know, what are the chances that a girl like you would go out with a guy like me? And, and she says something like, ah, oh, he's one in a trillion or something like that. And he goes, so you're saying there's a chance? You know, it's like, <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess if you want to look at it that way, my point today is that when you look at the universe and see that it has all come together in such a perfect way to support life as we know it, how can you say that that's just by chance? Dr. R.C. Sproul once said this, what are the chances of the universe arising just by chance? And then he said, not a chance. (laughs) Chance is not a thing. Some people talk about chance as if it has causal power. It's just a word that means probability. Chance can't do anything. See, I believe the only kind of being which makes this world possible is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God. Richard Dawkins once said, if God is really up there, then why does he so hide himself? And I would say, Richard, he hasn't hidden himself. Everywhere you look, whether it's in a microscope in biology whether you're on the nature walk this weekend with our church or whether you look into a telescope, all of creation is testifying to what we read in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they tell us what they know. What do they know? They know that there is a God who created them. Their job is to bear witness and to display his majesty and his greatness and his glory. Their job is to say, there is a God and he's really, really big and really, really awesome and he's worthy of your devotion and worship. This is the song that all of creation is singing all around us, inviting us into the song as well. I don't know about you, but when I just look up at the stars, 
I just get this shrinking feeling that comes over me. And it's not a bad kind of shrinking feeling. It's a good kind of shrinking feeling. You know, the scientists say that there's 70 sextillion stars up there. That means each of you could own 11 trillion stars each. But yet Isaiah says God knows them each by name. You see, the heavens are up there declaring to us there is none like him. And even though we are small in this massive universe that our God has made and tiny and frail, the scripture also says we are marked by majesty and made in his image. We are fashioned and formed by this God and fearfully and wonderfully made. All of creation is singing this song of our creator inviting us into the chorus, but we have a very unique contribution to that song. We don't just sing about his majesty and power and glory. We, as the redeemed, also sing about his grace and his mercy and his unfailing love. Is there evidence for a designer? Overwhelmingly, yes. That's not the question. The question is, will you join the song. Let's pray.